Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Let's turn to your Bible and let's go to Genesis chapter 3. The title of today's message is Embracing the Fall. We're going to look directly at the consequences of what happened after Adam and Eve fell and transgressed God's laws and how it plunged all of humanity, obviously, into sin and destruction in this world and decay and everything that follows from the fall. Embracing the Fall is what I entitled it because I know it seems almost obvious that, okay, we understand theologically that the fall happened of man, and it's affecting all of us even today. But what we start finding out is that Christians may understand comprehensively that the fall happened, but they don't particularly understand how it affects their interpersonal relationships, how it affects their life, how it affects how they view or perceive reality. And what I mean by that is, here's what happens. We start having a war inside of us. There is something inside of us, and I think it has to do with what Ecclesiastes said, that God put into our hearts eternity. And I think it has to do with that. Now, here's what happens. For some reason, because of him putting that eternity in our heart, we know intuitively or spiritually what it was like or what it could be like to live in an ideal world where there's no sin, there's no pain, where there's no people trying to hurt us or we're not hurting other people. We intuitively or sometimes, I would say instinctively, are aware of that. It's the only way you can describe it. I don't know if it's a a longing for what we had or a longing for what we're going to get, our hope, but it's there. And when it's there, it butts up against the reality that we're in, if that makes sense. Because we know how things should be. We know how things were or how they will be. And then when we step out on a Monday morning and enter the world again, we're confronted with how things fall short. And that causes us inside to have a tension, to have somewhat of an anxiety, somewhat of a stress. Things are just not comprehending. I know how it's supposed to be, but yet it's this. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. It causes a split inside of us. Those of you who have had babies recently, and this happened with our children as well, it's one of the most joyous occasions of your life to have a baby, to have your own baby and and start your family and whatnot. It's an incredible day when your children are born, and I'm sure a lot of you remember that. But isn't it interesting that when that baby is born that joy is somewhat diminished when the nurse comes in your room and says this to you. Now, we're going to put a band around your baby's ankle or around your baby's wrist, and we're going to put it around the mom as well. And you would say, why? Well, we we want to make sure your baby is not stolen. And at the height of your joy... At the height of the most incredible time of your life, you're told by somebody that someone could possibly steal your baby, and so we have to put a bracelet around them to make sure someone doesn't take your baby out of the hospital and steal your baby. Then all of a sudden, that joy turns into, 
reality of, oh my goodness, I live in a world where someone could steal my baby and that joy is instantly diminished. Or if you have a wedding and this is the most joyous time of your life, and inevitably something will happen at that wedding that diminishes that joy. It'll rain perhaps, or Uncle Joe will get drunk and make a fool of himself in front of everybody at the wedding, or so-and-so will get mad at so-and-so, and they'll have a big fight right there on the dance hall. And there you are in your wedding, and your wedding got ruined because people can't get their heads screwed on straight. And this is what you start seeing life is starting to become. At some of your most joyous occasions, those heights of uh, that you should be on top of the world, something will remind you of bringing you back down. Something will diminish that joy, and it's because of the fall. It's because we live in a broken world. It's not ideal. It's broken. We're broken. Other people are broken. And so it starts becoming the reality that we have to live in. And unfortunately, you live long enough a lot of times this life will remove a lot of the joy from you because it just keeps hitting you and hitting you and hitting you. And if you don't process it in the biblical way, if you don't understand the hope that we have, if you don't understand what God has promised us, this life will beat you down to the point that you become bitter, you become angry. There's a lot of people who are just in a disposition of anger all the time. And it's because life has beat them up so bad. They've lost relationships, they've lost loved ones to death, lost jobs, and they simply are losing the ability to cope with the hits they're taking. In fact, some people become depressed, they become suicidal, and we're seeing even today in our society the rise of suicide because even the pagans can't deal with reality as it is because it is getting rough out there. There's no doubt about it. You already know this statement, life is difficult. But those of you who have lived that difficult life know what I'm talking about. It is hard. It is hard to get one day through the next, to get through week after week, and it doesn't seem like there's any end in sight. And this is what I've learned a lot of times, even in my own walk. I wasn't prepared for the fall. I simply wasn't prepared. As you know, I grew up a Catholic idolater, worshipped statues and goofy things like that. The priest never told me, hey, there's this fall that happened, and you're going to have to deal with that. And you're, here's the way you're going to have to deal with that. And I was very ill-prepared for the world that I was going to encounter. So you go through your teenage years and you're very idealistic and you think, you know, you have the world by its tail. And then, in fact, when you get into your 20s and 30s, you find out that uh, it has you by your tail and that you're being tossed to and fro by the world. And you really don't have the world that you thought you had when you were 17. And that's a hard thing. People get very disillusioned by that, about life. It's because they're not prepared. We were never taught that the thorns and thistles are going to puncture our feet as we walk through life. We were never taught how to defend ourselves against hurtful people. There were actually people who wanted to do us harm, that would do us harm, intentionally. We were never told that. At least I wasn't. 
You were never told about bad health and what could happen to you through that or happen to others. You were never taught love with limits. You never taught grace with truth. You were never taught success with failure. We weren't prepared for what this world would do to us. And hence, because we weren't prepared, we started hoping with the world in what manner we thought was best for us. And we started using worldly tactics in order to cope with the pain because the pain hit us and we didn't know what to do with the pain. And no one taught us how to deal with that pain. So we took matters into our own hands and we found certain mechanisms that kind of took the pain away temporarily. They worked temporarily, but it didn't solve the problem, didn't it? It didn't solve what we were going through and that pain just kept coming. What you start seeing with Genesis chapter 3 is God is showing us what happened, what happened to our world, and explains why we're going through what we're going through. No doubt, it's a very pessimistic passage because it's telling all the ramifications, but at least it's real. At least it's not pie in the sky. Now, we have the rest of Scripture, obviously, to back this up and say, hey, God has promised us a new future. We're going to have a new Eden. We're going to have a new paradise through Christ, and we understand that. But, You have to embrace the fall if you're going to cope with reality. Let me give you a hint before we get into the application. The hint is, if you do not embrace the fall, or at least accept the reality of it in your life, here's what you will psychologically do in order to cope. You will start splitting reality. Now, follow me on this. I'm going to give you a hint, and then I'll get the application at the end. What do you mean you'll split reality? Well, let me give you an example, and then we'll go into the text. People who split reality see the world in one way or the other. They see the world as all good, or they see the world as all bad. They split reality. These people who see all the world as good never see sin, okay? They see everything as good. They're the ultimate optimists, right? But they never deal with the reality of bad or evil or sin. They just are out there, man. And so they see the world as all good. The people who see the world as all bad never see any good. And hence, they never see the goodness of God. They never see the commands of being good and the things that give life to them. And so they live a very destructive life because they've given up. The balance in all of this, now flush this out a little bit further, is you have to see reality with both aspects. You have to see the bad, the fall, but you also have to see the good as well. If you do not balance both aspects, you will slide one way or the other, and it will foul up your perception of reality. I'll explain further. But this is how important it is. The world is split out there. They don't see both aspects. They are either on one side or the other. So it is a major issue that you have to have foundationally in order to perceive reality correctly. If not, you will lose your mind. So it's a tension that you must keep. Let's then look at what happened, identify what happened, 
accept what happened and understand the implications of what happened because it applies to us right now. It applies right now where we, where we are at right now. So let's start in verse uh, 16 of chapter 3. We'll go through 24. These are very familiar passages, but I'll try to bring out some insights in there that might help us out in understanding our own personal reality. Starting in verse 16, it says this, To the woman he said that God said to her, Here's the penalty. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. So stop right there. And the idea is the multiplying of sorrow has to do with the increase of the menstruation cycle of the woman. That's what he's talking about. So the menstruation of the woman, the sorrow will be in her menstruation. Now what's happened is he's multiplied it. He multiplies the ability of a woman to conceive once a month. And the idea is that your conception is linked to this. So it seems like before, what the text is indicating is that women have the ability to, to menstruate and conceive, but it was less frequently. Now understand this, if there was no death principle that had been introduced, then you couldn't have women having their cycle every month and being able to conceive every month because the problem is the population would explode. But because death has now entered into humanity, God increases her ability to conceive, to have babies, in order to outpace the death of humans. And so there's an extra measure of grace here. There's a penalty attached to this. But there's grace in the penalty, if that makes sense. And that, that, that ability to have babies is going to outpace the death of human beings to where human beings won't, won't be eradicated by the death principle. There always exist human beings alive. Okay, but then he says, in pain, you shall bring forth children. So obviously you talk to any woman today, and there's pain associated to childbirth. And there's a reason for that, obviously, because of the consequences of the actions of the woman. So obviously, there's this kind of pain that starts happening to women when they start having a baby. And a lot of women would say, thank God for epidurals, because that lessens the pain, obviously. But think about this. Since Eve, until now, until modern medical, women have had to suffer with the pain of childbearing. And it is a constant reminder to every woman when they have a child of the fall. It's there to remind women of the fall. Now, in modern times, new things have happened. People bring their phones into the birthing center and they take pictures of everything. And so now you have these nitwits now that go into the rooms. And the poor lady, this lady is obviously passed out from all the pain that she's went through. And this idiot's taking a selfie of himself with his passed out wife. And you constantly see these people who are on the selfie binge. They can't get enough of, of, of the selfie. So look at this idiot. His wife is there in labor, and he's doing a selfie right there. Yeah, real bright. And this guy, look at the, the, the poor gal. She's obviously in a lot of pain, and he's giving thumbs up. He's all good. And this, by the way, was on their birth announcement, Brisbane Birth Photography. Now, guys, if you go into the birthing room and take a selfie of you and your wife in that kind of pain and you advertise it, 
Ladies, you have the right to kick him out of the room and say, you wait in the waiting room. You're not going to take selfies of me in pain like that. But this is the modern day idiot, right? The modern day, he doesn't get it. So back to the pain, obviously, that ladies deal with. What is God trying to do through this? What is God trying to say? It's definitely the pain of the punishment. But notice in the text, there's no cursing of it. What you'll see with Satan or you'll see with Adam, God will curse them or curse the ground or curse Satan. But there's no curse associated to the woman. There's only pain that's associated to her. And there's something here, and I want you to see this. It is a typology. It is a typology that God is sending through childbirth, and he is sending a typology that points to several things. This is interesting. Childbirth, as a typology, ladies, shows you as the birth pains start happening, they cause an increased amount of pain, they get worse as the contractions, and they get closer together, right? And then the child is born, which signals joy. So then every mom would say it was worth the pain in order to get the child, which is the joy. God actually was embedding a message in childbirth. And this is the message. There's three messages. The first message in the typology is that the Messiah would suffer greatly and then die on a cross, rise from the dead, the joy, and then deliver us from sin. So just as a woman delivers a child, she goes to the suffering, but then that child is delivered. And the same thing is true for us. Messiah suffered on a cross, rose on the, from the dead on the third day, and then delivers us. That's the first typology. Second typology is it refers to the second coming. As you recall, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse said that his coming would be like the birth pains. Not the rapture, but the second coming. And as the birth pains happen, which is following the model of birth, they get more intense and more frequent. And that's what we're seeing. The signs of the times, things are starting to converge where things are happening more frequently and at a greater level. And as you know, as that gets closer to the time of the birth or gets closer to the time of the second coming. And hence, ladies, birth also signals not only Messiah's first coming where he suffers and dies, but also his second coming where he delivers Israel and delivers us and the whole universe from the bondage of decay third typology. The third typology is the deliverance of the world. Paul mentions this in Romans 8, that the whole world groans, much like a woman having birth, waiting or groaning in travail, awaiting the day when the sons of God will be revealed. What does that mean? Well, it means that one, the, the earth, the cosmos is groaning as a woman does, waiting for the delivery of who? Of us to be revealed, to be revealed as the sons of God and the children of God in our full manifestation and glory in the kingdom age. So interesting enough, 
God puts as a penalty for what Eve did pain, but also a message of hope in the birthing process about the Messiah, first, second coming, and then the deliverance of the entire universe in the birthing process. That's what we were supposed to pick up in the birthing process. Now, whether you did it or not, I don't know, but that's what God was implanting in that, that suffering comes before deliverance. Pain will come before glory. You'll see that whole theme carried through the Bible but he's not done yet. So we pick up the rest of the story, and one of the other penalties is seen in the next verse. And it says, Your desire shall be for your husband, which is an ironic judgment. What did she do? Well, if you recall, Eve decided to act independently, took her own initiative to deal with the serpent, And then she took her own initiative to actually partake of the fruit first and then hand it to Adam. So you recall, she took the leadership position, which she should not have done. Adam is the federal head. But she usurped his position by doing what she did. We have called that, theologians have called that, the Eve syndrome. And the Adam syndrome is the man who sits back and watches things play out and lets his wife be in control. So you saw that dynamic as we talked about that. The woman taking the initiative, the leadership role, and the man taking the subordinate role and the passive one in the relationship. Well, that went upside down, and because of that, God reverses it and says, here's what I'm going to declare. Your desire shall be for your husband. What do you mean, desire? She will want his position as an habitual problem in her. Every woman will have this problem. Every man will have the Adam syndrome, so man's not off the hook, but because she usurped her husband, even to this day, there's something in women that they have to combat of desiring their husband's position, of desiring male leadership of desiring the ability to control and manipulate her husband. Some people are honest with it. Some people, oh, no, I'm totally in submission to my husband, and he calls all the shots right. Everyone can see it. What, are you fooling yourself? I love when people try to cover up that with their talk because you can see it in their actions. It is an ongoing issue, whether you're a Christian or not, it is a problem that women will have. Now, you go outside of the Christian confines, oh, the pagans have no control over this. No control. I mean, look at some of these politician ladies. Look at Hillary Clinton, for goodness sake, as as an example of an out-of-control woman, or just go through the rest of them in the politician's Nancy Pelosi, and and you just go through the, all the politicians want women, Kamala Harris. I use those as examples of, wow, they're stronger than goat's breath. How in the world do their husbands put up with that? Yikes. But you know why their husbands put up with it? They have the Adam syndrome, and they don't know they have the Adam syndrome, and 
They say, happy wife is a happy life. Oh, so you just let her just run roughshod and do anything she wants to do, right? So the outside world has no control, but at least the Christians are supposed to understand this and control it. So that also implies that the husband must be proactive in his leadership of the home. If he's not, this will occur. This will take over the home. It's an ironic judgment, obviously. And look what he says in the next phrase, and he shall rule over you. I wish I can tone this down, but I can't. The Hebrew doesn't soften things. It actually hardens things. Now, yes, we're balanced with the New Testament of a husband's supposed to love his wife as Christ loves the church, and there's all that that, that you have to employ too. But if we just took Genesis as Moses wrote it in 14, 1500 B.C., and just take the Hebrew, the Hebrew is mashal. And the word mashal, it doesn't mean loving leadership. I'm sorry, it doesn't mean that. Mashal means mastery. Mashal in, in Hebrew means she is his subordinate. Now, this is creation language, okay? And creation language goes, it's not referring to the church, it's referring to humanity, that he's going to set humanity in this role where you have the woman who's subordinate, Mashal, under the headship of the man. And that's supposed to be for the rest of society. Now, here's the deal. It sounds harsh, but it has to do with authority. It has to do with spiritual authority. It has to do with how God has structured the universe. If this authority gets messed up or upside down in a family or even in a culture, then that culture or family will go upside down, regardless if they're Christian or not, regardless if they're believers or not. Now, obviously, there can be abuse of this, right? And we see a lot of women in history being treated as property and things of that nature. And we understand that that's an extreme. But if you understand what's really trying to say is it's telling you what a marriage should look like, regardless of a belief in Messiah or not. But here's the problem. The majority of marriages are in power struggles. They love each other, but they're in a power struggle, right? And unfortunately, no one wants to admit it, but they're fighting over who's in control of this family. And there is what tends to happen in a lot of homes. So what do we take away from this? What, what are we supposed to understand? Well, obviously, the New Testament adds more understanding of loving your wife as Christ of the church, but no doubt about it, in the Trinity, you still have Christ in a subordinate role to the Father. He will do only what the Father tells him to do in his incarnation, right? And so Christ actually models what the woman's supposed to do in relation to her man as Christ follows the Father. It's a perfect role. Neither of them are less than, they're co-equal in the Trinity, right? And same thing in a, in a marriage. Both people, the woman and the man, are of the same value, have intrinsic value, being made in the image of God, but one is supposed to be subordinate under the male. And if that gets tampered with, things go awry. So take, for instance, cultures that are matriarchy in nature. Have you ever seen a culture that's matriarchy? It has a matriarch in the family. It's controlled by that. That culture, that socialization will go upside down very quickly. 
What's happening to America as an example? Well, obviously, the women's lib has brought women's rights to the forefront. And no one's against women having the same rights as a man, and they should. But then, actually, what happens is it goes too far, and the pendulum starts swinging too far. And now we have what's called egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is not complementarianism. The Bible's teaching complementarianism, the two complement each other. Now you have egalitarianism, which means, oh no, she can rule just as much. It's actually in opposition to the biblical text that's going on today. And so homes are being destroyed because of egalitarianism. And unfortunately, our culture keeps pushing this. You will actually start seeing the destruction of our society if it's starting to be run as a matriarch. Now, you know what's under attack? The patriarch is under attack today. That's what they're going after is what Judeo-Christian ethics teach is a patriarchy. And that is now coming under attack. They'll, they'll even mention it. So it's not a secret. They'll mention it. And so if that continues to happen, guys, you will see a society go upside down very quick. Because just, you just can't function that way. Anyway, let's move on. In verse 17, it says, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, Adam's syndrome, let her lead, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed, now here's a cursing now, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So let's follow that and parse that out a little bit. So because he took a subordinate role to Eve and let her lead him to fall, because he took what she gave him. So now the ground is cursed. Now this is interesting. The ground is the earth, the arets in Hebrew, which means the ground, the earth is under the authority of Adam. That's originally how it was. But because Adam has fallen and is cursed, the ground now has to be cursed because that's under his authority as well. And that's a principle you'll see all throughout Scripture. The one in authority, if they mess up, everything under them will be cursed as well under their authority. And so now the ground is then cursed. So what are the implications of this? Well, we call in science the second law of thermodynamics is now introduced what will happen is God will remove his life-giving presence from energizing the earth through the Holy Spirit to give life to it, and he will remove that life-giving ability that he has and remove it from the earth, and the earth will start decaying. The whole universe will start decaying. And we know in science, the second law of thermodynamics is everything is running down. Everything is dying. We're dying from a heat loss. We're dying from our magnetic fields dying. Everything's dying. And obviously, what are we made out of? We're made of, out of arets. We're made out of the ground. Hence, our bodies will start dying as well because of that. So that's the cursing of it. And anytime you see this, this explains why things are so bad on this planet. This is why tornadoes happen. This is why earthquakes happen. This is why all natural disasters happen. It's because God removed his life-sustaining presence or ability, and he withdrew it. And this is the earth that we start getting. And then he says, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So this idea of toil it has to do with work. Work will now become extremely hard. 
And man will have to labor in order to stay alive. He will not have access to the tree of life in order to sustain him. He will have to work in order to sustain himself. And that's what we do. We work to live. We work to feed ourselves and our family. Isn't it interesting when the Thessalonian church decided not to work and they were going to put on white sheets, so to speak, and wait for the rapture? Paul told them, hey, guys, if you don't work, you don't eat. He was getting that passage from this very passage in Genesis chapter 3 is what he was referring to because man will have to work in order to survive. Let me ask you this question. What do you think happens to human beings when they do not have to work to survive? When they don't have that motivation that I've got to survive, I've got to put food on the table, otherwise my family and I starve, what do you think starts happening to them? Well, just check out our welfare system. And you will have a clue of when you take the motivation away to work because then they could just get a subsidy from the government and they can, they can not work. I'm not talking about real handicapped or real disabilities. I'm talking about the fakes. When you lose that ability to, well, I can get food no matter what because I, I, I get a welfare or whatever it is and you're, you're, you're cheating the system and you lose the ability to work, when that happens, that, that person's life will go upside down quickly. They will get into all kinds of other issues, particularly sin issues. Because you know what work is actually doing for us? It actually is curbing sin. You say, how so? When you have to work every day, you have to get up and go to work to put food on the table, you can't have time to mess around. You have to go to work. You can't be doing drugs. You can't be smoking pot. You can't be doing getting drunk because you have to work. And actually work then becomes a curtailing of the sin nature that God implants in man. Say, so you're going to have to work for it now. Because before, without the sin nature, man could leisurely walk around the garden, do a little gardening here and there, and the earth just produced for him. But the minute man receives the sin nature, God puts him into work. Because as you work, you get tired. And when you get tired, you need to sleep. So what happens to these people who don't work? Guess what time they're up at? They're up all night and they sleep all day. Have you noticed that? They're off schedule. And what's that old saying about something that happens after midnight? Nothing good happens after midnight, right? And it usually doesn't. Apply this to society. The more people we get on governmental assistance and they don't have to work anymore, the more problems we are going to have as a society. Look at L.A. I mentioned this to my Sunday school class. Look at L.A., look at San Diego, look at San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, all these cities who have overwhelming homeless populations who don't work. What's happening over there? You're getting third world diseases now. Third world stuff that we've eradicated in our country are now back. The bluebonic plague. Thank you very much. I thought we eradicated that out in the Middle Ages. But I guess we're back to it. Go to L.A., get the bluebonic plague. Get typhoid. Get typhus. 
get MRSA, get all kinds of third world diseases because some people have checked out of reality and refuse to work. That's going to destroy us. And so this is practical, very, very practical things. Let's return to the text. It says, both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. So it's not just going to be hard to labor. The world is actually going to go against you. It, you will suffer to eat. So God withdraws his power and disorder that starts happening on the planet actually makes it more difficult for us to survive. This planet is no doubt good for us, but it's also hostile to us. It will not submit to us, just like the animals won't. So the earth is not submitting to us. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? Adam wouldn't submit to God. He'd rather submit to his wife, who would rather submit to Satan. And hence, God takes everything under his authority and makes it not submit to him. Talk about getting a good taste of your own medicine. I find that amazing that in all these penalties, it's giving them a taste of their own medicine. Eve, you won't submit to your husband. Now I will place you in subjection to him. Adam, you won't submit to me. The earth is now not going to submit to you. How ironic, but how fitting. And why would God do something like that? Why would he do that to us? It's to remind us of the sin, and it's to remind us of the consequences of not submitting to him. Think about this. Every day Adam had to get up and work the field, he was reminded of his non-submission to Yahweh. Every time. Every time he stepped on a thorn, every time he had to pull a weed, he was reminded, this is because you didn't submit. This is because you didn't submit. You talk about a life lesson. Wow. That's, that's, it's no doubt there, man. And then he says, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. So they're going to remain vegetarian until the flood. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So he's talking about the sweat of the labor, but then he, he gives a picture of Adam's future. You're going to die. Dying you shall die. You're going to return to the ground from which you were made, the arets. You were above the ground, but now you're getting put back down into it. And it's a reversal of the creation process. And so, it, it, again, it's more ironic judgment. And he says, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Again, referencing how we're made, what we're made of. And so physical death will eventually trump all of Adam's efforts to stay alive. Now, we know Adam lived 900 plus years, and his genetic code was very intact. Today, we know we're going to live 70, 80, maybe 90 years, and that's about it. Our genetics will eventually fail on us, and truly, we will return to the dust. Now, we have the hope of the resurrection, that God will reassemble our bodies and put us back together, but then here's the reality. We're all going to die if we're not raptured. We're going to see this happen. And we're, we're watching ourselves get older and older by the day. We're seeing our own mortality in the mirror, and it's not fun. It's not fun at all to watch us 
who we were in the prime of life when we were 21. We had everything going for us, and now the years have come, and we're seeing our own deterioration right in front of our very faces. What are we supposed to think about with that? You're supposed to think about the curse. It's supposed to remind you that we're inevitably going to physically die. But what did the Scripture say? You don't want to die the second death. And so you need to make sure you're saved through Christ in order not to experience the second death because your body is going to physically wear out on you and your soul will separate from that body. And we see it all the time with funerals and, and our, even our own family that we've lost loved one. But you know what? I know this sounds crazy, but death is actually a blessing in disguise. And I know none of us would think about that, but I want you to think in several ways. Death limits man's capability of evil. Just imagine if George Soros was allowed to live for a thousand years. I mean, think about that, right? How much damage that dude could do in a thousand years. But God limits it to, you know, I don't know why he's hanging on this long, but uh, he looks like he's 150. But at some point, George Soros is going to die. And his evil will stop. Now, you think back in history, Hitler swallowed a Sinai pill and killed himself. So his reign of terror ended. Death actually prevents the world from people getting as evil as they possibly could, could get. It's a blessing in that sense to the rest of humanity. In the other sense, for us, death is somewhat of a blessing because it delivers us from this body of death. Now, to, tra to, 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 to go from this body to the next is what we're looking forward to, the glorified body. But it, we will eventually get rid of this body. This body is wearing out. It's decaying on us, and we do need to get rid of it. So death becomes, in that sense, a blessing because we don't have to stay in this state. God's got us a new body, and thank God for that. I am so looking forward to that new body. But it's a blessing. I know it's kind of a weird way of looking at it, but that's what's happening. Verse 20. And Adam called his wife, wife's name Eve, or Chava, because she was the mother of all living. Now, this passage right here seems like it's out of place. And you think, wait, all this cursing's going on and penalties. And all of a sudden, in verse 20, there's this statement. Don't miss this statement. It is a statement of faith. It is a statement that shows that Adam got his head screwed on straight again, put it back on, is now functioning correctly. How so? When he, Adam calls his wife Hava, it means that he's understood what God has said, understood that she will bear the Messiah, that she or the or womanhood will eventually produce the Messiah, which is their hope, which is what they're looking forward to. And so he believes that. It shows Adam's belief. And then it says, because she's the mother of all living, the idea that women's ability to reproduce will outpace the death principle, but one day produce Messiah. So there, Moses inserts that to say they're believing now. They're back in fellowship with God right now, which is amazing. But look what God has to do. Watch the order. They come back to in faith. They're now functioning correctly. 
And look what God does to them once they believe. Verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made tunics of skin and clothed them. Look at the order. Believe, and then God makes provision. Now, in this provision, it has physical aspects, but it also has spiritual aspects. He made tunics of skin and clothed them. What was Adam and Eve wearing prior to this? Fig leaves. They had sewn together fig leaves to cover up their nakedness, right? And so they were only, but they only made fig, uh, coverings of their genitals. It didn't cover the rest of their body. There's a spiritual message behind this. What Adam and Eve could do on their own was inadequate to cover up their sin. Their own works couldn't cover it up. Does that make sense? They could only sow fig leaves, which is their works, and he only covered up a portion, but not all. So God then remedies the situation of their nakedness, which is a symbol for their shame and guilt of committing this trespass. And what does he do? Does God sew fig leaves together? No. What does he do? Tunics of skin. But what does tunics of skin imply? Several animals, at least we know two, had to be what? Sacrificed. Bingo. God did the first sacrifice to cover up Adam and Eve's sin. And the only way that would cover up their sin is the death or blood of the animal that could cover them. And hence the tunics could cover them and more than their genitals, a lot of commentators will say the tunics actually covered them from their necks down all the way to their ankles. Oh, that's very interesting. So sacrifice blood covered, that sounds very familiar. It sounds like what Isaiah talked about, the robes of righteousness. You and I will be clothed because we've accepted Christ one day. Our nakedness will not be seen because we are going to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And the, it's a robe. And what is a robe? It's not, it's, it's not a swimsuit. A robe is covering our necks all the way down to our feet. Hence, we're totally covered. Now, we're covered by Messiah's righteousness, obviously. These are animal sacrifices awaiting the future sacrifice of Messiah. But obviously, you get the picture. The only way sin can be forgiven is through blood. But tell me this. What preceded God making the provisions for them? Faith. That's what verse 20 is. And verse 21 is, if you believe, I will give you eternal life. Isn't that what Jesus said to Israel in the first coming? Believe and you will have life. Adam and them believed. God gave them life back. I made coverings and clothed them. It's a beautiful picture of salvation. Beautiful picture of that. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. That's the Trinity talking among the divine council between them themselves. Become like one of us. What do you mean become like one of us? He's not, Adam and Eve have not become like, they're not like God in the sense ontologically. They've become a God unto themselves. They have experienced evil. God has never experienced evil. 
He can point it out, but he's never experienced it. Adam and them have experienced evil, and they will start becoming the determiner of right and wrong if they stray away from God. So because of that, because they now possess a sin nature, they must be kept away from something. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So, so the idea is God is trying to do a blessing on them by not giving them access to the tree of life in this condition that they're in. They're in a sinful condition. And the sinful condition will end in death. But if they get access to the tree of life, that tree of life will make them immortal in their sin. Much like Satan. And like Satan is not coming back, right? So Satan is locked in. So as an act of mercy, God keeps them from the tree of life so that they don't get solidified or cemented in in their sin forever. It's an act of mercy. Verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. So they're instantly, it's a forceful expulsion. Otherwise, man would not have left. This was a proverbial, what in myth mythology, they call the fountain of youth. It's actually the tree of life. It's funny how that, that got corrupted to the fountain of youth, of water, but it's actually a tree of life. So he's forced out, and notice what God does to force him out. And he placed a cherubim, or placed cherubim, uh, multiple, at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, this is interesting. This is all tabernacle language. This is all temple language. What do you mean? This is a garden temple. And much like in the temple or even on the curtain, they had cherubims on the curtain. Just like at the throne of God, there are cherubims that encircle the throne that protect the throne of God. Hence, in this garden temple cherubim are put now in front of it to protect people from going in and and partaking of life very interesting very interesting and and there's this flaming sword that anyone gets close it'll kill them basically and it guards the way of life now here's the deal this for the next about two thousand years will be where man meets god Notice that they're at the east of the Garden of Eden. They're an east port. That's the eastern gate of the temple that we see today. That's where you would have to go through, and you would have to go to the altar, give your sacrifice in order to get close to the presence of God. And it always faced east. So that's why we see this is, this is tabernacle language. So I want you to think about this because it's going gonna, it's gonna to lend itself into chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. This is where humans were meeting God all the way until Noah's flood. And so human beings had to come here to this location, make sacrifice before Yahweh in order to maintain their relationship with him or be saved or whatnot. And so they went there to commune with God, but they couldn't go any further than the eastern gate. It's a beautiful picture of the tabernacle. So access was denied to seeing Yahweh in his presence. They were kept back. That being the case, then, the tabernacle, this garden tabernacle will disappear after the flood. You won't see that anymore after the flood. Somehow, some way, I don't know how to explain this, 
But in the future temple in the New Jerusalem, that tree of life is seen again. So I don't know if God just transported it and took it to heaven uh, before the flood. I don't know. We don't know all the, the ins and outs about that. But somehow it came out of earth and made its way to the New Jerusalem. You will see one day in the New Jerusalem that very same tree that Adam and Eve had access to and were denied access to. And you and I, if rewarded enough, will have access to that tree of life one day. So you'll see it. You'll get it's kind of a, a time thing. You'll have to you'll go back in time and so to speak by seeing the tree in the present. It's it's a pretty amazing thing. Okay, so all that to say, what's the application? It's a lot there. Let's go back to splitting reality. There's the fall. There's what happened. And here's the implications that we all live with today. It happened and we're having to deal with it. Okay. Let's make sure we're balanced in our perception of reality. We have to understand the fall happened, but we also have to understand that there's good in the world as well, because God infuses the world with good from himself. Okay, so that's a balancing act that you have to keep. Now, for instance, let me give you the balancing act. You have to understand personally, you're extremely valuable. You're made in the image of God. You have to understand that. But you have to balance this with another truth is that you're, you and I are extremely sinful. If you get those two out of whack, you'll mess up reality. I'm extremely valuable, but I'm extremely sinful. That's a balancing act. The second balancing act is this. You are extremely talented in what God has given you in your abilities and your gifting by the Holy Spirit. You're extremely talented. But at the same time, you're extremely weak. The flesh is weak. Didn't Messiah say that to, to the disciples? And you have to balance the two. You've been given extreme amount of opportunities to do things for the Lord. Just unbelievable opportunities that await you if you'll take those opportunities. But at the same time, you can become lazy and blind to those opportunities and not take them. And so it's a balancing act. How do we prevent us from going one side or the other? First, you cannot pretend that the bad isn't there. You cannot think that the elephant is not in the room. The bad is there. What do you mean on a personal level? Let's talk about that. You can't pretend that so-and-so doesn't have a drinking problem. You can't pretend that you don't have the Adam syndrome or the Eve syndrome, if that's occurring. You can't pretend that so-and-so doesn't have depression. You can't pretend that sexual abuse or physical abuse hasn't affected you. You just can't. If you do that, you're denying the bad. It will cause problems mentally. You can't pretend that so-and-so is not an enabler or a codependent, if you want to call them that. You can't pretend that they have some type of mental problem. No, that's just my perception is wrong. You can't ignore that going on in people. If you start doing that and pretend the bad isn't there, 
you will mess up things. Look how bad people mess up their kids when they pretend that the kid is, doesn't have bad in them. What do you mean? Well, you have this idealization of children today. Oh, they're, they're the golden child. They can't do anything wrong. By the way, parents will typically do this to one child, and the other children are the black sheep of the family. There will always be a golden child, and that child can't do anything wrong. That's a denial. That's a denial. These people can't deal with failure. There can't be any failure. There can't be any shame. And boy, how do you, if there is failure, they will condemn and they will respond angrily if there's any failure because they can't acknowledge failure. They can't acknowledge any bad that could possibly happen. It's almost a, a very sickening thing. But what happens with their relationship with God when there can't be any bad and it's all good? What do you think it does to their relationship with God? They don't need God. When there is no bad, particularly in themselves, why would they need God? Savior, dying for my sins? I don't commit sin. It's a, it, that's their mentality, right? Because they don't recognize the fall. They pretend the bad in them doesn't exist. Have you ever been around somebody that doesn't think they're bad? Who doesn't think they're sinful? They're full of pride. And the problem is, that doesn't get anywhere with God. It's the second thing that happens. There's other people who will split reality and go on the other side and say, they'll pretend the good isn't there. They'll acknowledge the bad. In fact, they'll paint the world as all bad. They'll paint people as all bad. They'll paint themselves as all bad. They never see any good in the world. It's all bad. Pessimistic, critical, depression, suicide, give up on things. It's all bad. It's all bad. When someone sees the world as all bad and they don't see any good, they definitely will miss the goodness of God. Now, what do you mean by that? Watch how this works hand in hand with God. The goodness of God is he infuses into our lives his standards that protect us and give us health and give us spiritual health and whatnot. So he'll give us a biblical model of marriage. He'll give us the sanctity of life. He'll give us those things, proper sexual relationships. Those are all good things that he gives us and says, if you practice these, they will turn out good for you. You'll live a good life, an abundant life, if you practice what I'm telling you to do, even in a fallen world. But if the person denies there's any good that could come from God in this world, guess what they'll do to their morality? They will not follow biblical standards because they don't think the biblical standards are good. They will follow the dictates of their own will, and so biblical marriage doesn't mean anything to them. They'll practice any type of marriage, gay marriage, whatever. Sanctity of life, they could care less about the sanctity of life. There is no good. It's whatever's a woman's choice. Proper sexual relationships, there is no good pop, proper sexual relationship. You just love what you love. You see what it starts happening to their morality when they deny that there's the good is not there? It starts affecting the way they think. And how will they see other people? They'll see people, it's all bad. They don't trust anybody. They stay isolated. They stay withdrawn. And what does it do for them, their image of God? If there's no good then I don't want a relationship with God because he's not good. In fact, what they'll say is, he's been very bad for me. 
He hasn't been what I needed to, for him to be, so I don't actually want anything to do with him. You notice this, that if you split reality either way, it alienates the person from God. Either way, if you deny the bad and you deny the good in life, you will alienate yourself from God. Now, let's bring to a Christian level. We can have pockets of that in our own lives. Pockets of that. We deny good in our own life, what God's doing. What God, and you could just get really pessimistic and say, woe is me, I'm a victim, and I feel sorry for myself, and I'm going to go in the, in the corner, get into the fetal position, and suck my thumb until I die. Right? And that's not the way it works. If you do that, you're giving up on life. Right? Or you can go crazy on the other side and say, there's no evil, there's no problem, and we're dancing through the tulips with Joel Osteen thinking there's nothing going on in our lives. Everything is just rosy. Everything's wonderful. And deny the reality that's out there. Do you know what happens to me sometimes when I talk to someone about that? And saying, hey, are you aware of what's happening in the world, what's happening in the church? When I start telling them that, you know what the first thing they say to me is? Oh, you're just being negative. You're just being a doom and gloom type of guy. You're, no, no, I'm being a realist. And the fact that you're out of reality doesn't make me a wacko. You're the wacko. Because you're not in reality. You're denying evil. You're denying that there's a presence of evil in your own life. And so it comes down to, do you understand the fall? Yes. Here's the ramifications. Am I balancing reality properly? I understand the evil. I understand the good. And I'm balancing the two. If you are good, you will stay sane. But if you don't, and you go to one side or the other, welcome to insanity. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.